from the Gospel according to St. Mark. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this. The Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks, spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that had, they had cut in the fields. And then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. So, uh, let me ask you, I mean, who, who doesn't like Palm Sunday? All right, you got the palm branches, the excited crowds, which has a decidedly celebratory air. I mean, aside from Christmas, Palm Sunday is probably the only time during the year that you get to unpack your hosannas and wear them out in public without people looking at you like you've got an elbow growing out of your forehead. I mean, all those hosannas, we hope, will fortify us for the difficult work ahead of us. They don't call it Holy Week because it's full of rainbows and unicorns. Jesus has had an, uh, has an epically lousy week in front of him, and those of us who follow him down the dark alley of Holy Week are exposed to all the humiliation and suffering endured by the one whom we claim to love. I mean, Holy Week is pretty grim, let's just be honest. Even the Son of God doesn't make it out alive. So Palm Sunday is kind of... That's kind of like the Mardi Gras before the bleak landscape of Holy Week. And, you know, why not celebrate a little bit on Palm Sunday, right? I mean, there's a ticker tape parade. Jesus rides into town to the raging applause of a supportive crowd. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in highest heaven. Now, that sounds innocent enough. Right? Kind of a fun way to spend an afternoon with the family down at the parade. 
The parade Jesus leads is often called uh, the triumphal entry. Jesus rides into town. Everybody's tickled to death to see him. According to Mark, he's never even been to Jerusalem before. So this is quite a flattering reception. Palm Sunday. We celebrate it every year. According to the way people think about it, there's not really that much theologically at stake. Still, it's, it's a definite break from the suffering and repentance of Lent, from the remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return, as a slight breather to collect ourselves before the horror show of Holy Week. Jesus is on a donkey, palm waving, people throwing their cloaks in the streets, parade. I mean, the biology teacher from the high school gets dressed up like a clown and drives that little kitty convertible around in circles while a handful of Teamsters throws candy into the crowd. The VFW insists on firing that cannon every 50 yards or so, sending all the infants and toddlers and many of their parents into fits of terror. But there's also a lot of cheering. So, you know, it's all good in the end. But what we almost never do on Palm Sunday is recognize the other parade that's going on at the same time as the one Jesus is in. Now, I suspect that may sound confusing to you. Did you not know that there were two parades on the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem? There was another one. Okay, um, so I've failed you if I haven't told you about the other parade that takes place on the other side of Jerusalem on that Sunday when Jesus braved the cheering crowds and made his way into the city. So coming into Jerusalem from the west side of the city, on the same day that Jesus sat astride his donkey, Pontius Pilate rode into the city, leading a column of imperial Roman soldiers and cavalry. Now this imperial procession was a ritual in Roman-occupied territories. The Romans saw it as a, as a useful way to demonstrate their power over conquered peoples. It's a kind of a reminder that, you know, Big Brother's watching, and if you get out of line, all this military might is pretty much what you got to look forward to. Now, in the case of Judea, the Roman governor Pilate, who lived uh, most of the time about 60 miles away from Jerusalem in a city called Caesarea Maritima, it's a sort of a seaside resort. Uh, dedicated to Caesar. But Pilate would make this regular show of Roman superiority in Jerusalem during major Jewish festivals, including the feast of Passover, when Jews from out in the countryside would make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate, make sacrifice at the temple. And Passover, of all the Jewish festivals, made the Romans the most squeamish. Why do you think that is? Well, think about it. I mean, Passover celebrates the liberation of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage and oppression. And since the Jews of Jesus' day were living under the unyielding bonds of Roman oppression, you can imagine why any celebration of liberation might make the Romans nervous. As Richard Horsley points out, the annual Passover celebration was not simply the side of the 
the sigh of the oppressed creature, it was also the protest against very real distress. See, whenever the Jews had a major festival, the Romans sort of bulked up the guard. But, but Passover was in a league by itself because the Romans didn't want the Jews getting any fancy ideas about liberation. And so they made an extra show of force just to remind everybody who's boss and what kind of suffering is at stake for those who forget that. Pilate riding in on a war horse surrounded by a throng of goons and knee breakers is a hard point to miss. I mean, let's just be clear. So you can imagine just how effective such a cautionary demonstration might prove to the rubes who rolled in from the countryside during the festivals. You know, I mean, the whole clan gets all dressed up. Mom packs plenty of fried chicken and potato salad. Dad washes off all the layers of dirt and soil from the old Ford pickup truck. And the kids, who don't get into town very often and are therefore annoyingly excited, they keep pestering Uncle Pete, who would just like a moment of solitude if that's all the same to everybody else. Is that too much to ask? And the family piles out of the old Ford only to hear the distinct, distinct clop, clop, clop of war horses riding down the street, followed by row after row of men carrying spears and shields, scary-looking guys riding around in chariots. So in this parade, I mean, nobody's passing out candy, uh, no clowns, no funny little cars. It's all business. In fact, everything looks pretty menacing. There's a lot of bronze and leather, and everybody's sort of scowling. Even the horses look irritated, ready to lash out. So mom runs up to the children. She wraps her arms around them, hissing at them to keep their heads down. Don't look into the eyes of the soldiers. There's no sense provoking them. Dad puts himself between his family and Pilate's minions, trying not to draw attention to himself or to those he spends every day of his life trying to scrape together an existence for. But the odd thing that you might never notice if you just happen to walk up on the scene without knowing what was going on, is this isn't just a show of Roman imperial might militarily. It's also a show of Roman imperial theology. Because these Jews need a reminder of just who God is. As Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan point out, according to this theology, the emperor was not simply the ruler of Rome, but the son of God. Inscriptions refer to him as son of God, Lord, and Savior, one who brought peace on earth. After Caesar's death, he was seen ascending into heaven to take his permanent place among the gods. For Rome's Jewish subjects, Pilate's procession embodied not only a rival social order, but a rival theology. And it happened every year, like clockwork. Agitprop, a show of force, a dramatic form of propaganda. I mean, everybody knew what Pilate was... Uh, going to have his little military show parade. Maybe he shouldn't, he wouldn't break out the tanks and the blue angels, but everybody knew this was Caesar sort of narcissistically flexing his muscles for the hayseeds. Jesus knew what was going down on the other side of the town 
on that Sunday or when he rode in from the east. But everybody knew. Mark tells us that as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he took two of his disciples aside and he said, go into the village ahead of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt who's never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. And what he says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, well, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, why is that significant? Well, Jesus is apparently planning a little dramatic political demonstration of his own. And he knows that Pilate's got his big shock and awe thing going on on the other side of the city. So Jesus does what appears to be a little advance work. That is to say, the donkey thing is a kind of a premeditated poke at Caesar's man in Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate, and all of the political pretensions of Rome. See, there's an obvious parallel between Pilate's majestic war horse and Jesus' scrawny little petting zoo donkey. But there's something else going on here that Mark's audience would have picked up on immediately, which isn't so apparent to those of us who are now 2,000 years removed. The prophet Zechariah wrote hundreds of years prior to Jesus, Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious is he, humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? Matthew, in his version, actually uses the quote from Zechariah. Mark leaves it out. But the reference here is pretty obvious to uh, Mark's readers. They know what allusion he's making to Zechariah. And so we find Jesus planning to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, while Pontius Pilate is riding into the other side of the city on the back of a war horse. Now, both are making political statements. Both are making claims about who's in charge, who's ultimately God. Okay, Pilate, sure. I mean, obviously, that's clearly political. But how can you be so sure that Jesus is being political? Well, because of what comes next in Zechariah, something I suspect that none of us knows right off the top of our heads, but would have been immediately apparent to Mark's readers. The prophet Zechariah follows his announcement of the king riding in on a donkey by saying, Your king will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations, his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. <laughs> See, Mark makes a fantastically bold contrast between the two different parades, between two kinds of kingdoms, between two visions of the nature of God. I mean, Pilate represents a king who rules the masses through fear and intimidation, a king who's quick to unleash violence upon those who might question his reign, quick to unleash violence to sustain what Rome calls peace, the Pax Romana, which is itself a bloody attempt to keep people pacified. Surrounded by the engines of war, the king demonstrates his weak hold on power, knowing that if he lets his guard down for even a moment, if he lets any slight go unanswered, then the oppressed will rise up. But Jesus, he's a king who will cut off the chariot from 
Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Jesus riding on the back of a donkey promises a, a political alternative to the blood and cruelty of Caesar, a, a promise of peace to the nations that doesn't rely for its intelligibility on swords and guns and horses and the weapons of war. Promises a release from governments that oppress and destroy the weak and the vulnerable. I mean, there's two different parades going on simultaneously on this Sunday. One that sought to maintain the power of the straight, the, the state to crush the powerless, and another on the other side of the city gathered the voices of the powerless to challenge the oppressive power of the state. See, Pilate leads a parade meant to demonstrate the power of the old kingdoms of this world where domination and oppression are the coin of the realm, where there is no peace, only a kind of terrorized submission. A kingdom where people wake up every day to the uncertainty of poverty, a kingdom where being different means being other, which can be a death sentence. A kingdom where women find themselves and their bodies controlled by men who rarely have to live with the consequences of that control. But Jesus leads a parade with the offer of a new kind of kingdom. A kingdom where victory is not won with war horses and the bow, but with a donkey and some palm branches. A new kingdom built on justice and equity for the downtrodden. A kingdom where people don't have to live in fear that the state will tear them from their families because they don't have the right documents. Or that they might be struck down in their backyards by officers of the state while holding nothing more threatening than a cell phone. Or that their children must lie awake every night in fear that going to school may be the last thing they ever do. I was looking back through my Facebook memories the other day and was reminded that we just celebrated the three-year anniversary of the original March for Our Lives. You remember that? Students who'd survived the Parkland shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. They gathered together and organized a march in Washington, D.C. And there were 880 other simultaneous marches and protests across the country. Protesting a government that failed to protect its children from gun violence. Which we know about. We're also in the middle of grieving two recent mass shootings. I mean, let's face it. Pilate and Caesar are always going to have their parades to remind people who's in power. Three years ago, millions of people marched in another parade, a parade not, led not by politicians and generals, but by children. A parade that sought to challenge the violence of the state. Well, actually, they didn't call it a parade. They called it a march, which is another political demonstration meant to show the forces of domination that they refuse any longer to live in a world ruled by Glocks and AR-15s. You see the difference, the contrast? Kings on donkeys, children with banners and signs. That's how we challenge the old kingdom 
of violence and fear. That's Jesus' plan. Well, let's not kid ourselves. There are parades taking place every day, clashes between the old kingdom and the new about who God really is and what kind of world God really desires. Are we going to live in fear? Or are we going to live with the peace that comes from a world that God designs with enough for everyone? There's always a parade to go to, to participate in. But the real question is, which one are we going to march in? Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.